The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, let's go to the Word of God together, and we're in Acts chapter 2. Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Acts a section at a time, great historical book of the church. Before we get to Acts chapter 2, if you wanted to turn, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 16 as a kind of a theme verse for us. If it's helpful for you, on the back of the bulletin is uh, an outline of the sermon today. Notice we're covering verses 37 to 47 as we are in Acts chapter 2. Peter just preached a sermon. We went over the sermon last week, and we also noted last week in uh, the book of Acts, it was the day of Pentecost where Peter was preaching that amazing sermon. And by God's providence, last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday for us uh, here in the church. So that was quite amazing. So Peter preached this powerful sermon. It was gospel-centered. As a matter of fact, it was the gospel that he preached. And now he's going to follow up on his sermon, and we're going to see how the people responded. And before we get to the text of Acts chapter 2, I want to read our theme verse. This is the Apostle Paul, former church persecutor, Christian hater, Christian killer, zealot opposed to Jesus Christ. He was a murderer. He even identified himself that way. Um, I don't think you can think of a person in history was more intently opposed to the gospel of Christ, biblical Christianity, with such a hardened heart, satanically blinded, sinfully driven enemy of God. And yet, something changed him, and the change was on the inside. That's the only way you can really change a person is on the inside. It has to be a supernatural act. It has to be an act of God to change a person, to change a heart. And Paul's probably the greatest example of someone who got changed from the inside out. And what changed him was God Almighty himself and the Savior, and God did it through the truth of his gospel. The beautiful gospel, the supernatural gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, the gospel which means good news, and that good news is all about Jesus Christ. And so Paul got saved from his wretched, hateful, hardened, sinful, opposing life as he heard the gospel became a new person, a new creation in God, not only became a Christian, but also was called by God to the ministry and gave his very life sacrificially for the ministry for many years. We're indebted to Paul for 13 epistles in the New Testament. Many wonderful mysteries about biblical truth, and here's one of them in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Keep in mind that he wrote this after being saved. He knows from experience more than anybody the, the true meaning of this powerful verse. And those of you who are Christians and have been radically changed by the truth of the gospel, you can identify with what Romans 1.16 says. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, who he is, the God-man, who came here, sacrificed, left heaven where he had been for all eternity, came down here, became a man, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life for 33 years, never sinned, that's the good news. And then willingly went to the cross, died, got executed for being a criminal, although he did nothing wrong. And while on the cross, he absorbed the full fury of God the Father's holy wrath, 
poured out on Jesus, and Jesus was dying as a substitute, as the Lamb of God for sin of the world, of all who would call upon him and believe in him. And then Jesus died, was buried, and raised again the third day. He did all that for a purpose, to die on behalf of sinners. That's the gospel that Paul is not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the work and the person of Jesus Christ, for it is the power, <clears throat> the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in that message is the, the supernatural, saving, life-changing power of God. It is the greatest power source in the universe. It's the only thing that can change a human heart. It's the only thing that can change humanity. It's the only thing, really, that can make a difference in the world and in culture. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's, an, it's on an individual basis, believing this gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. What is the greatest source of power in the universe? It comes from God, and it's in the content of the gospel. And with that, that's the foundation of what we want to look at today in Acts chapter 2. So go ahead, let's go to Acts chapter 2, and we'll continue in our study together in the book of Acts. Uh, picking up at verse 37. The title today for verses 37 to 47, I had a lot of titles, I had to choose one. I settled on the biblical church, but various other titles I was thinking of was true church growth because there are examples of church growth here, clearly. And church growth is kind of a hot topic and has been in the evangelical church for 50 years. As a matter of fact, when I say church growth, it's become kind of a buzzword in the Christian world. It means different things to different people, but sometimes when you hear church growth, you usually, many times Christians think of a person. Church growth, Rick Warren, church growth, or whoever. That's pretty typical in our day and age. Um, but there are even church growth experts decades before Rick Warren came along. I, I would say that there was church growth theology long before the 20th century. I'd say there was church growth theology starting right here, Acts chapter 2. And so we're going to look at the biblical church. Verse 37 to 47 comes on the heels of this powerful sermon that Peter preached, verses 22 and following, um, it was the day of Pentecost, a major Jewish feast day, thousands of people uh, bustling in Jerusalem. Mid, uh, it was early morning uh, when God poured out his Holy Spirit in fulfillment of Scripture upon every believer in a way that he'd never done before. It was amazing. Um, and many Jews witnessed what was going on. They heard supernatural sounds and were in awe, and they said, what was this? And so Peter says, I'll tell you what this is. He had a ready audience of thousands of people that he preached to. Uh, we don't know how many thousand were in that crowd. Could have been 10,000 for all we know, as they were brimming around the temple uh, in the morning for daily prayer and sacrifice. And Peter preaches this just amazing sermon. We have excerpts of it and highlights of it starting at verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, and he concludes his sermon in verse 36. And if you just examine the highlights of this sermon, Luke gives the highlights, and the highlights are the gospel. That's, that's what he did. He preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, this is the gospel, it's very short, this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture, was buried and rose again, on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's it. It's the content. It is a message. 
And if you examine the highlights of Peter's sermon that he preached that day, it, it's the gospel. He talks about the Lord Jesus, verse 22. He talked about that God, the Father, gave him over to death to die. So the heart of the gospel. He died for sin. He died to conquer death. That's also ra- uh, mentioned in this chapter. He was raised again from the dead, verse 24. He was ascended on high. That's the gospel. And so that's what Peter preached to these Jewish men who were there at Pentecost. They were religious people. They knew the Old Testament. They were looking for the Messiah. Uh, many of them actually were guilty of saying, crucify him, crucify him about Jesus. So they were actually had blood on their hands for the death of Jesus Christ. So Peter not, uh, Peter not only preaches the gospel to these Jewish unbelievers, but he also tells them they are personally culpable for the death of Jesus Christ. And so he personalizes the gospel. You are sinful people. You killed the Messiah. Here's why he came. Here's who he was. Here's how he was approved of God. And you crucified him. You are guilty. Nevertheless, God fulfilled his plan with the death of Christ. In fulfillment of scripture, Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended on high, has been exalted and declared by God Almighty as both Lord and Christ, or Lord and Messiah, King and the Anointed One. And the Jews, that meant something. King, Lord, Yahweh, and Messiah, Anointed One, the Promised One, the One that is to come in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And you meant you missed it. You crucified Him. So it's a powerful message Peter preaches. He uses the Word of God. He uses the Gospel as he preaches. He used divine revelation, special revelation, not human wisdom. This is revelation received from from God Almighty, not something that Peter made up on his own. This is not uh, just sheer human logic apart from God's revelation. It is uh, the divine Word of God is the content of what he preached. And in conjunction with that, the Spirit of God invisibly is moving on the hearts and the minds and the conscience of those who are listening. So you've got the Word of God and the Spirit of God working on sinful hearts, minds, and consciences, piercing them, convicting them, drawing them, and even for some of them, opening up their spiritual eyes so that they can understand and see the truth, drawing away, peeling away even satanic blindness that blinds unbelievers. And then Peter hits the culmination of the gospel, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns on high even now as both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, he concludes, whom you have crucified. So we just read, Paul said, the greatest power in the world is the gospel, the content of the message about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. There is no greater power and there's no greater convicting power. The message of the gospel, when you talk to someone, it does its work. It convicts. It either brings joy or it brings encouragement or it brings conviction and sorrow and repentance or it brings anger and hatred but the gospel when preached always creates a reaction in the heart of people whether you see it manifest or not and that's what's going on in this massive crowd peter preaches this amazing sermon there are thousands of people there And as a result, God, with his supernatural message in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, who does his work on the hearts of every soul, creates uh, just incredible sensitivity, conviction, and many other emotions on the hearts of all these people. And so let's go ahead and look at verses 37 to 47 of how this crowd responded. Uh, First, I want to highlight is the power of a biblical church. This is the first day that this is when the church began. This is the birthday of the church. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, began on the day of Pentecost with the preaching of the gospel and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and also with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How appropriate that that's how the church 
would begin. The foundation of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the biblical church. It is amazing uh, how I've seen it for a few decades now, several decades of Christians and churches all over kind of scratching their head trying to figure out how do we do church? How should we do church? I'll never forget 20 years ago when somebody, uh, a room full of Christians and somebody asked me that. They found out I was a pastor. And so, yeah, oh, what's your, well, how do you do church at your church? What's, what's your, what's your church? I said, well, what are you talking about? What is your church model? My church model, what are you talking about? And then they gave examples. Well, do you do the Willow Creek thing or the Acts 29 thing or the this thing or the that thing? And I, I said, well, we just kind of use the Bible. And it, everybody in the room was like, huh? How does that work? Well, then I began to explain further. Well, like the book of Acts, right here, lays it out. This is how the church started. This is the model we should follow. There are principles here. There's theology here. There's precedent here. There are examples here. It's to be perpetual. This is how we should do church. And so when we actually started uh, GBF 10 years ago, when we were thinking about how should we do church, it was, well, let's look at the Bible. And here's how they did church in the book of Acts and in the New Testament epistles. Hey, maybe that's how we should do church. And we all took a vote, and it was unanimous. Yeah, let's do church like that. So that's why I came up with the biblical church. It's it's beautiful, simple. Uh, it's got a 2,000-year heritage. And this is the way God has designed it, and this is the model we should follow. And when you do church according to God's example and his mandates in Scripture, God blesses. He takes imperfect, fallen, broken people and accomplishes his ministry if you use his methods doing it his way and depending upon him. And so here we just see wonderful blessing as God lays out through his apostles of how we should do church, of what a biblical church should look like. So that's what I wanted to highlight here. That's why I call it the biblical church. So here's four points of emphasis regarding a biblical church. And you could take any church today and put it through this grid. These four things should be true of a biblical church. So let's go ahead and look at it. Point number one uh, in a biblical church, the power of the biblical church, and that is the gospel of Christ. I just talked about that in Romans 1.16. Some churches are built out of a, a powerful personality of an individual. And there have been many throughout history. There have been many in the 20th century. There are many today, just a powerful, charismatic person. And when you build a church around that, that is dangerous because that's not God's model. Power needs to be around the truth of the gospel and the person of Christ and him alone. And you see the evidence of that here. This... That's how Peter began the church. He preached the gospel. He wasn't depending upon his own strength or the strength of the apostles. He's dependent 100% on God's divine revelation. Here's the precedent we're going to set, and it is to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was an elder. He was a pastor. He was a preacher. He was a church leader. And that's what church leaders are to do. They are to be preoccupied with the preaching of the gospel. And so that's Verses 37 and 38, we see the power of the gospel. Now, when they, verse 37 says, now, when they heard this, the audience, 3,000 plus people, no doubt men and women. Now, when they heard this, when they heard Peter preach the gospel, they were pierced to the heart. The, the verb there is very graphic, pierced. It's a compound Greek word, meaning it's intensified. They were pierced to the heart, the cardia, cardiac. That's where we get the word heart. Uh, heart in the Bible refers to the inner man including the conscience. So as Peter preached the truth of the gospel, many in the crowd were pierced to the heart. In other words, they felt guilt. They felt culpability. There was a very real subjective sense 
that they had a need and that they were guilty and had blood on their hands. They responded accordingly. They were pierced to the heart. That's what the gospel does. It is powerful. It is the only thing that can change a human being. And so they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, the other 11 apostles, brethren, what shall we do? What does that mean? What shall we do to be saved? How should we respond? We feel guilt. How can we be alleviated of our guilt for killing the Messiah? That's what they were asking. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, here's his response. Repent. Repent. That's his main verb there. Metatanaeo. To change. To change your thinking. To change your attitude. To change your mind. Uh, By the way, repentance is a gift from God. We're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. Repentance is something that human beings are called to do. It's an action on our part. It's something we do. Repent. This is an imperative. The verb is an imperative, meaning Peter is telling them, you must do something to be saved. Uh Uh-oh, that's controversial. Can humans do something to be saved? Should humans do something to be saved? Sometimes people say, no, no, it's all the work of God. Well, it is all the work of God. Everything about salvation is a gift of God, but humans need to do something. What do they need to do? At a minute, they need to repent. They hear the gospel. They hear the truth. They feel guilt. They need to repent. That's something that is our will. God doesn't save us against our will. That is our volition. We are responsible. We're accountable to God to respond to the message. We must repent. And when we go out and evangelize unbelievers, at some point, we need to call unbelievers to repentance. We need to call them to change their heart, their attitude, their mind, their lifestyle. A synonym for repent is to turn in the New Testament. We're going to see this in Acts as well. To turn. You're walking this way towards yourself, towards sin, towards Satan, towards death, towards an eternity apart from God. Repentance is turning, turn this way towards God, holiness, the gospel, and specifically Jesus Christ and the message of his gospel. Turn to him that he might save you. We don't save ourselves, but we do repent. Some would argue that, well... We don't go out and preach repentance today because that's what Peter was supposed to do only with the Jews. That's actually what a lot of evangelicals believe. So in other words, when we go out and give the gospel, we just tell people to believe in Jesus and accept the gift. You don't tell unbelievers to repent. That was the big controversy over the lordship issue. But no, it wasn't just Peter doing it. Uh, Jesus came in Mark 1.15, a summary statement of Jesus' ministry, and it said Jesus came preaching, saying, repent. And believe in the gospel. So those two go together. Repent and believe. Those are the two things that we do as sinners. We don't offer anything good to God to be saved. But we do cry out and ask for forgiveness. That's repentance. Admitting, I am a sinner. I am the sinner as we beat our chest before almighty holy God. Recognizing we need to be saved. He's the only one that could save us. So we need to repent. And we also need to believe. That's what Jesus said. So repent and believe they go together. Uh, Peter doesn't say believe here. Actually, he said believe. It's just not in the text. Uh, throughout the book of Acts, Peter will say believe along with repent. This is not a complete message. Peter said many other words. It says later on in the text. But repentance definitely needs to be preached to unbelievers. Uh, repent and believe. Believe in the gospel. Repent means recognize that you are sinful and cannot save yourself. So that's what you do first. So And when you repent and when you believe in the gospel, then you are instantaneously saved. And for us now, since this time, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you immediately at that very moment. Then after you're saved, then you are to get baptized. 
So baptism always comes after repenting and believing. And baptism comes after repenting and believing here for Peter. He said, repent and be saved. Because repentance is being used as a summary statement for repent, believe, be saved. And then after you are saved, then each of you are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You need to join the church formally through the outward act of obedience called baptism. Getting And today we're going to have some baptisms of those who's given their life to Christ and baptized means to be immersed and every example in the New Testament is baptism by immersion in water and many times it was the Jordan River getting dunked we say not sprinkled dunked because that's the New Testament model so you get baptized after you get saved and we get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ meaning under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who by virtue of what Jesus has done or in light of the gospel in which I believe and embrace so today we will have baptisms in the name of Jesus Christ Because he is the Savior. He is the one who has saved us. By the way, repent is plural. Every one of you needs to repent. So the the gospel message is for everyone. Repent, all of you. But then in the... You can't see this in the English text. So repent is plural verb. Then when he says baptize uh, each of you, that's singular. So the message of salvation is for everyone. Repentance is not for everyone. It's singular, meaning it is individual by individual, only those who believe. Very important. So the power of the biblical church is the biblical gospel. By the way, uh, some would say that, well, Peter and Jesus preached repentance to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, we don't preach repentance, and Paul didn't do that, and we, we're going to see in the book of Acts. Yeah, actually, uh, Paul does. He preaches repentance as part of the gospel. And so in Acts 17, he gives a summary statement. He preaches to all these uh, Athenian uh, Gentiles. And then he preaches the gospel. And at the end, he says, God is requiring all men everywhere to repent. And then in Acts chapter 20, he tells the Ephesian elders, I've been here for three years preaching the gospel to Gentiles in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Day and night, you know that I have, and I haven't stopped declaring the whole counsel of God, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God's grace, calling Jews and Gentiles, get this, to repentance. So repentance was a part of all those who preached the gospel, and it needs to be a part of our gospel as well. It's Repentance is the response. The gospel is the content. Repentance is our response. Belief is. And repent. And by the way, repentance and belief or faith, they complement one another. They're two sides of the same coin. And also repentance and faith are gifts from God. Gifts he gives us through the content of the gospel. It's amazing. Uh, So Peter said, repent. uh, And then when you repent, when you believe, you get baptized. And upon repentance and belief, we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that's what his promise is to them at the end of verse 38. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And that's been true of any person ever since then who's believed the gospel that the holy spirit came to reside in them permanently that is the power of the gospel well a true biblical church let's go to point number two verses 39 and 40 what are the practices of a biblical church well my point here is that the practice of the the way we do church should be unchanging it should stay the same in other words here it is 2016 2000 years later we should be doing church for the most part the same way peter and the apostles did church Despite the culture, this is a different culture. This is the Middle East 2,000 years ago. They spoke a different language. They didn't have the technology. Uh, here we are 2,000 years later. We have. To, shouldn't we be doing church differently? And some people believe that. And they're always trying to figure out, we've got to change, we've got to adjust, we've got to do something novel, different, uh, so on and so forth. That church philosophy is always changing. I'd say, no, we just do it the way it's in the Bible. 
the practices of the biblical church in the early church are the same practices we do today. Just a couple of highlights there. Verse 39, because Peter said, for the promise of the gospel of salvation in Christ, of the coming Holy Spirit, of forgiveness of sin, of the new covenant, those are the promises. They were given in the Old Testament. They're fulfilled in Christ. Those promises are timeless. They are unchanging. And the beneficiaries never change either all throughout History, this this promise of the gospel, Jesus as Savior, is for everyone. This promise, for the promise, is for you, you Jewish people standing here. Not only is it for you, it is also for your children and your really your offspring, meaning the children you have now need to hear this message, and your descendants, your great-grandchildren, and your great-great-grandchildren. And in perpetuity, all throughout history, this is true. Same message, same practices, Preach the gospel, call to repentance, to believe in Christ. This doesn't change. It's for all people, for all time, until Christ returns. We don't change the way we do church. We don't change the message. Because the power is in only one place. It's in the gospel. This promise is for you, you Jews here, for your children, your descendants. And also, in addition to that, it's not just for you, but also for all who are far off. That includes the Gentiles. And we're going to see that later in the book, starting at about chapter 8 and following for the rest of the book. Now the gospel is going out to Gentiles. They, they are the ones who are afar off. That's the terminology Paul uses in Ephesians 2, referring to the Gentiles, those who were set apart. They were, uh, I mean, not set apart, but they were apart from God. They were without God, without the covenant, without the promises, very far away from God in terms of his gospel and being his people. And so this gospel message is for the Gentiles as well. In other words... The gospel of Jesus Christ and the way they did it here will work everywhere you go, no matter where you go, no matter who you're working with, no matter at one point in history you are, which is very refreshing and encouraging. So you can go out anywhere in the world as a missionary to pick your country, pick your language, whether it's to the Russian people or the Chinese people or the Indian people or the Mexican people or the Aborigines people or to the Bush people or to the Texans or to the silicon people we take the same message it doesn't change isn't that awesome because it is one lord and one gospel and it will work on any people well when you're working with those indian people you got to kind of finagle things to do things different because they're a different kind of people and they don't believe this and they believe no no people are the same the gospel never changes and god's method never changes that's one of the most exciting things is I get to go around the world to these different countries and meet people who become Christians, like people born and raised in India, totally different culture, different language. They come to, they hear the simple gospel, they become a Christian, and the, it just resonates our stories. They're similar, they're the same. The same God, the same message. It's a beautiful thing. They are closer to me as spiritual family than blood family. And it's true everywhere I go or everywhere you go, where you meet Christians from around the world. And that's the way it should be. Uh, so the practices of biblical truth are universal and unchanging for the promises for you, your children, the Gentiles, uh, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Uh, but it's interesting in verse 21 of chapter 1, Peter quotes from Joel and says, and it shall be, the salvation promise shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, we're supposed to call unbelievers to call, we're supposed to ask them to call upon the Lord, and at the same time, God calls us to himself. It's a mystery. Verse 40, and with many other words, see, there it is. We're not getting everything Peter preached. Many other words. 
Probably preached a long time. Had, probably had to work the corners with people who had questions too. And maybe the other 11 apostles as well. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on. See, he kept on relentlessly and kept going and kept going, kept on exhorting that. That is strong language. Pleading, explaining, teaching, maybe rebuking, also encouraging. That's what that word means. It's hard work. Pleading, exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this crooked generation. The lost world has always been crooked and perverse. It is today. It always has been since the fall. Nothing changes. So those are the practices that we need to employ. These promises are for all people. Well, regarding a biblical church, we looked at the power of a biblical church. The practices of a biblical church never change. And now the priorities of a biblical church. Verse 41 to 42. What are the priorities? Boy, this is kind of controversial in our day and age. Um, You're going to get different answers as you go around. What are the priorities? I mean, if you visit churches, those of you who visit churches, you're going to see, you go and you attend and you see there, some churches have very different priorities. What should the priorities be? Some churches actually make the music the priority. Some make the preaching the priority. Some make the preaching uh, different styles of priority, like, we only preach um, thematic messages or we only preach whatever. Or some would be, well, we only preach expository messages. Uh, other churches make a priority of being sensitive to unbelievers who are there in the audience on Sunday. Seeker sensitive. And that kind of determines everything they do. Look, that's a philosophy of how to do church in terms of the prior. So everything they do in terms of planning the day, planning the morning, what is said, how you do it, the music you do. How you should dress should be in deference to unbelievers who might be there. So the music we should play should be music that unbelievers enjoy during church. And unbelievers, um, they're kind of afraid and intimidated by religion, so let's get rid of everything that's religious. So uh, make sure you don't bring a, make sure they don't see a Bible when they come to church because that might, intim- I'm not kidding. So let's make sure we don't have any Bibles. Um, and you know, pews, those are kind of traditional and, uh, kind of irritate. So let's put cushy, uh, theater chairs or candles or, I mean, on and on it goes. Add in, uh, the organ is quite offensive. So let's get rid of it and let's get an electric keyboard. I mean, this is the, you know, the worship wars been going on for three and four decades, which is totally a distraction and, uh, grieves the heart of Christ because that's not what the conversation needs to be about. But we do need to recognize what are the priorities are they clear? Are they debatable? Are they optional? I don't think so. And we'll see some of these priorities right here as the apostles lay down the precedent for how to do church biblically with respect. to Already preaching is a priority because that's what Peter did. Already the gospel in preaching is the priority. Do you know you can preach and not preach the gospel? You can preach and not be Christ-centered. It happens all the time. You can preach very religious. You can preach... Uh, I remember a church I was candidating for, and there were a lot of candidates, and I made it in the upper echelon, but I didn't get selected, and the, they, the leadership spoke to me, and I asked why, and they said I wasn't funny enough. That's what I was told. I, really? They listened to my sermons like, I wasn't funny enough? Man, I should have used my best jokes. Bummer. Can I try it again? Anyway, true story. You are not funny enough like wow yeah our church likes to laugh anyway so for them apparently laughing 
was a priority for church. Um, I don't think laughing is sinful, but it shouldn't be the priority of preaching. I think it's priority in preaching should be understanding the word of God as he's given it in the new covenant, which means the new Testament, which is all Christ centered. He fulfills it all. And so we need to be Christ centered. He's the one that changes lives. Gospel driven, Christ centered, spirit empowered, God honoring, life changing in context. That's the kind of preaching we should be doing. And it sets the tone for everything. Did you know that biblical teaching and preaching sets the tone for everything else, every ministry in your church? It defines and informs everything. Well, prayer should be the priority. Well, you don't know how to pray until you look at the Bible and see what it says of how to pray. And you've got to have correct teaching and preaching in the New Testament about prayer in order to pray the right way. It informs. So the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God informs everything we do. Well, evangelism should be the priority. Well, you've got to look to the Bible, the New Testament, of how it teaches about how we should evangelize. It uh, informs everything we do. It drives everything. Everything is a byproduct and flows from biblical preaching. Christ-centered New Covenant preaching. That is a priority. That was clear for Peter. That's what he did. That's what he does for the rest of the book to change lives, to change the city, to change the world. Paul comes along. Peter hands the baton to him, and he does the rest of the same thing for the rest of his ministry, the Apostle Paul, preaching the Christ-centered gospel and the scriptures. That needs to be our priority. Uh, so look at 41 and 42. So then those who had received... So Peter said... Uh, repent, believed, get baptized. So many did. They repented. They believed in this gospel he was preaching. They asked God for forgiveness. And that is summarized in verse 41. So then, as a result, those who had received his word, they received, they believed in the message. They embraced the truth. They repented of sin. They believed in the gospel. They became Christians. They were born. That's what that means. And Luke's terminology is very interesting. He says... Those who had received the word. Now, some people don't like that word received. Uh, he received Christ when he was 17. Oh, yeah, well, you don't receive Christ. That's shallow. No. Received is not a bad word in context. It's used right here. To receive the word. To believe legitimately the word. To accept Christ. To embrace Christ. To So that's the word used. Received. Not a bad word. It depends on how you use it. So... When somebody says, I received Christ when I was 13, you don't say, oh, you didn't receive Christ. You can't do anything. It's all God. No, they received Christ. That's a biblical phrase. It's a biblical concept. It's what we do. Received. You can either receive or reject. Which one is it? You hear the gospel. Received is synonymous for belief. I think of uh, John chapter 1. As many as believed, as, as many as received him, as many as received him, to, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Received, again. Or with the four parables of the soils, those who received the word of God on good soil. Or in Acts chapter, or Matthew chapter 11, Jesus talked about those who receive me, receive the Father. So just wanted to point out, don't get uh, bent up out of just words that can be totally legitimate in expressing how someone comes to faith. So they received the word, they were believed. Then they got baptized. Baptize, baptism always follows salvation. We don't get baptized to get forgiveness of sin. We don't get baptized so God will like us more. Baptism is not a human work to earn God's favor. So today when we see the three baptisms, nothing is happening in terms of sin being washed away. God isn't liking them more. They're not earning their way to heaven. They are already saved. And this is an outward sign 
of what God has already done in the heart. It's a symbol. It's all a living metaphor to show publicly they've bowed the knee to Christ. That's baptism. And it symbolizes washing with the water. And also it symbolizes down, death into the grave, up, resurrection in Christ. And get this, verse 41. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people who heard the gospel, 3,000 people who believed the gospel, 3,000 people who responded to the gospel, who believed in it, meaning they were of age, they could understand the gospel and believe. So this doesn't include infants and babies, just so you know. We don't baptize babies. People who responded, who received the word, heard the word, were convicted. So at least in 3,000 is probably a round number. So it's around 3,000 people. So that tells you how big the crowd was. Massive. 3,000 people. And they were added to the church. Formally added. That's what we need to do. That's why I believe membership, there's a precedent for church membership in the Bible. Right here. They were added. The terminology, very specific in terms of a very graphic verb that has to do with arithmetic and calculating and tabulating. And a formal process. They were at, okay, he got, he believed, he got baptized. Okay, Peter, who'd you got? John, who's that? What's his name? Okay, go over there, stand over there. Added to the church. So that's why we have membership. That brings accountability. You're part of a family. You're not a lone ranger Christian. That's not the body of Christ. Body implies interactive interdependence upon one another. A collective whole. So they were at it. About 3,000 souls. So you talk about church growth. This church just exploded. It started at the 120 at the core of their church plant. They were doing a startup. Here in the Silicon Valley, we talk about startups. This was a startup. 120 people preached the gospel. Boom. Explosive growth like never seen in the history of the church. Wow. If we could only replicate what the early church did so that we could have church growth. What did they do? They faithfully preached the gospel. And they had faithfully been in prayer for weeks. Oh, by the way, we have prayer meeting tonight. In about four or five homes. And then ours is open. I'd love anybody and everybody to come to our house. Six o'clock for prayer. Praying for our church, for our families, for the spirit of God to move on the hearts of people and the, the needs that we have. So come one, come all uh, to our prayer meeting. God blesses prayer. Prayer is all throughout Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And it corresponds to why there was explosive growth in that day. Make prayer a priority of your life. In your personal life, but also in corporate opportunities. So um, 3,000 souls were added, verse 42. They were continually, this was a lifestyle. They had changed. They changed their life. This is what they do now, not serving self. But they are continually devoting themselves to the following things about church. Again, this goes along with the priorities of a church. Uh, And I believe they're in somewhat of a logical order. It starts with the apostles' teaching, doctrine, biblical preaching, foundation of a biblical, healthy, godly church. Not a perfect church. There is no such thing. But there are healthy and obedient churches very important and it starts with the apostles doctrine it's not my opinion up here it is the word of god the apostles doctrine the the emphasis is on the new testament not the old testament they're equally the word of god but the new testament is the new covenant and the fulfillment of the old testament so that's why we need to preach that paul said he was a minister of the new covenant the new revelation as we see in christ is given in the New Testament, in fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we preach the whole Bible, but the apostles' doctrine that was given to them that is the culmination and fulfillment 
of the Old Testament promises. So that's why biblical preaching needs to be a priority of a biblical church, and it should never change, never change. Some of the church growth books that I've read and well-known church growth experts saying things like, well, whatever you do, um, maybe we should get rid of preaching because, you know, it's kind of old hat and archaic. People don't do that anymore. We haven't got this modern technology, so let's just watch videos and do drama. I'm not kidding. And I've seen it. It goes on a lot today. Or we'll have a panel discussion. Instead of the sermon today, we'll have a panel discussion. Or instead of a sermon from God's living, holy word today, we're going to go out and rake leaves in the neighborhood. No, let's rake leaves on Saturday and go to church and preach the word on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. That should never change. That's where the power is. So the apostles' teaching was a priority. Fellowship, you know what fellowship means? It means sharing. Sharing. Sharing your life, sharing the most intimate things in your life, sharing materially, money, your possessions. That's what fellowship means. Sharing quality time together, fellowship, sharing. Give and take. Priorities, biblical teaching, sharing your lives, breaking of bread. Oh, by the way, baptism, which means uh, the ordinances that God gave, which would include baptism and the Lord's table. The breaking of bread is probably actually the breaking of bread. It's mentioned again later in verse 46 where they ate meals together. So that's a sign of the, the highest level of intimacy with someone. And that's all throughout the Bible where you have a meal with someone. Sit down, have a meal uh, that is the deepest kind of fellowship you can actually have with someone. And that was characteristic of the early church. They had meals together, the deepest kind of fellowship. And that also needs to be true of churches today. You don't just come, attend, leave, talk to nobody. That's not the intent for the body of Christ. It's come and be a part of the body and interact and get to know people at a, a deep level and minister the one another's that are mentioned in the New Testament. So preaching, uh, fellowship, the breaking of bread or uh close relationships as we spend time with one another and also to prayer. I already talked about the priority of prayer. So those need to be the priorities of a biblical church. So the priorities for biblical church, scripturally driven. They come from the Bible. And then finally, when we are biblical, when we are obedient, when we follow the guide of the New Testament, uh, we do it with the right attitude, God will bless. He will bless. And that's... uh, an example of how God blessed the early church here, verse 43 to 47. And you'll see the blessings. I call them the product of being obedient, the product of a biblical church. They are manifestations that are spirit produced. They aren't uh, conjured up by church growth ideology that we make up on our own or novel ways of proceeding about things in light of our technology or human wisdom. It's all about what came from scripture and is produced by the spirit of God. God will bless his word always. And that's what he does here. So let's look at some of the products or the blessings of the early church as a result of them and their obedience. Uh, 43 to 47. Here are some of the blessings of the products of uh, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. This is a very personal, deep devotion that every one of them had. They had a love for God, a love for Christ, a personal relationship with their Lord that No one else could intervene with. No one else could undermine. No one else could replicate. No one else could intrude on. It is distinctive of biblical Christianity. Muslim people don't talk about a loving, intimate, personal relationship with Muhammad or Allah. They don't speak that way. They don't even understand that. Nor do the Buddhists or the Hindus or any other religion. 
Only biblical Christianity has this concept of you can know the creator and the judge of the universe on a very personal, intimate level where actually he calls you friend at the same time. Absolutely amazing. And people were just overwhelmed, a sense of awe, forgiven of sin. They know God for the first time in their life. There's nothing like being a new Christian when you get saved later in life. Nothing like it. So a church that has awe or fear of God, love for Christ, that's what that means. That is a byproduct of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Also, they had unity in the church. This is a gift from God. This is a byproduct of the work of the Spirit. You have churches that can be factious and warring with one another and not getting along. But then you can have sweet, blessed harmony in churches. And that is a blessing from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God unifies or he wants to unify his people at the deepest level. But if you're at a church and you're sitting around with grudges and gripes about other people in your church, it's against the will of God. It's absolutely carnal. It is of the flesh. It's against the Holy Spirit, undermines what the Spirit's trying to do in his church, grieves the heart of Christ. It's a horrible, wicked sin. It's like cancer in a church. Division, divisiveness, grudges, schisms. We already saw that in 1 Corinthians. So this blessed unity that these new believers have is just leaks from the passage here. Uh, And all those who had believed, get this, they were together. Oh, by the the end of verse 43, uh, they were feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles did the miracles, not everybody in the church. The apostles did the miracles. Important to keep that in mind. Verse 44, this blessed unity, and all those who had believed, the Christians, they were together. They liked each other. They liked being around each other. Ew, people. I don't want to be around. Well, anyway, some people are like that. But they actually loved people. They liked being around with people. They loved being together continually. They had all things in common. Verse 46 says they were with one mind. In terms of love and affection for the Lord. So they had this sweet, supernatural, blessed harmony and unity that was a byproduct of the Spirit of God. Also a product of an obedient church is family. Family. A sense of family. Some people say a sense of community. I think a sense of family is better, spiritual family. And God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother and savior. And they had this at the end of verse 44. It says they had all things in common. That's that's only true of a tight-knit family. Willing to share with anybody. Are you willing to give your car keys to any other believer and just trust them implicitly? And even if the car gets crashed, you know, well, that's from God anyway. And just trying to help out the brother or sister and willingness to share and have all things in common that was their heart not materialistic but loving as a family also verse 45 uh they did ministry to one another day by day or verse 45 and they were selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with everybody as anyone might have need that's kind of like our benevolence fund share and give and bless people who have needs and doing ministry to one another and it's not just the paid clergy doing ministry but all the saints doing the work of the ministry so a biblical church will have the saints doing the work of the ministry and meeting the needs of others uh next verse verse 46 uh a biblical church will have uh like i said that intimacy and breaking bread with one another house to house uh sharing relationships with one another verse 47 a biblical church with uh, obedient people will worship together small groups uh corporately together at church because that's verse 47 praising god that was an ongoing thing they did praising god together worshiping praying together singing together 
a biblical church will also make an impact on the community. That's verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. So their community saw them, watched them. And they were an example to their community and people outside the church or people, visitors who came and watched the church. They have an impact on society. So a biblical church will always have a witness to the world. Then finally, in verse 47, the last part, God was pleased, so God will bless. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. How do you grow a church? You be obedient to God. Let him grow it. We don't grow the church. Jesus said he would build the church. And here's evidence that he is building the church and how he built it. And we're going to see this church is going to continue to grow throughout the book of Acts bigger and bigger and bigger this way, but it's also going to grow deeper and deeper and deeper as a result of God's sovereign choice to bless the obedience of his people. So that is an outline and model of a biblical church in my heart's desire, hopefully along with you, is that GBF will continue to pursue this model of being a biblical church all for Christ's glory. And with that, let me go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts for these three wonderful baptisms we're about to see and hear. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship with your people, the saints. Thank you for the treasure of your word, for preserving it for us, allowing us to have a model to follow, uh, an encouragement. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel. The, the, the only way that we can know you personally and have forgiveness of sin, deep intimacy with you, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, I do pray that you continue to lead GBF, keep us dependent upon you, keep us humble. May we continue to just follow you and bow the knee to you, preserve our unity. Help us to always keep the right priorities that honor you. And we thank you so much. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.